Hello and welcome to the Poplar Propcast. I am Justin Libernet. I am your host. We are going to be talking about disasters today. We've covered a little bit about the water crisis and how that affects where people can live, where people will live in the future. Um, some of the stuff we'll look at later uh, are the hurricanes and the flooding and all the things that come through and kind of mess with housing in the U.S. But with the recent events in Turkey and Syria, we're going to talk about earthquakes today, and we're going to kind of talk through how the earthquake system was developed so that we can measure it, what we've done to kind of prevent more damage, and kind of what's happened with earthquakes in the U.S. and kind of nationally, and how that affects housing, investment in housing, and recovering from housing. With that said, I would like to call out, and there'll be links in the... Um, Links in the description. There are several ways that you can donate to support the efforts in Turkey and Syria that are ongoing to help everything that's going on there, which is just devastating. Uh, you can support the White Helmets at www.whitehelmets.org. You can also support the Syrian American Medical Society Foundation, and you can find them at www.sams-usa.net. Uh, those are the two that... Um, I've donated it to, there's others, there's the UN Refugee Agency, there's UNICEF, there's a lot. And so all I'm saying is that for me, those are the, the most straightforward ones to donate to, to support Turkey and to support Syria. So those are, those are the ones that are out there helping and can definitely use your support. So in Turkey, this earthquake that hit was pretty big. It was a 7.8 is the reports for the first one. And it struck it right before dawn. So everybody's calm and at home. And then the world fell apart. Um, so to start with, we're going to back off from Turkey a little bit and talk about how, what that 7.8 means and all the things that you can like measure earthquakes by. That to say that this is a hugely complex piece to go into because it's geology it's the history of all these things there's physics in here there's math but i'm going to try and keep it as simple and straightforward just to give you an idea of how these scales work and what these earthquakes are capable of <clears throat> that said it's an important to note that a lot of our geological numbers that we use are in human terms and not true um geologic terms i'm saying that because there have been earthquakes that made mountains. There's been earthquakes where plates hit together with such thrust and ferocity that you get things like the Himalayas. <laughs> Pretty much every mountain range was caused by just traumatic, deeply traumatic collision of masses of pieces of crust floating around on top of magma on the middle of the earth. So that said, um, we are talking about what we do as people and how we measure that. So we're going to do that and start talking about the numbers that we use to describe earthquakes. And the best place to start that is the first people that started talking about numbers associated with earthquakes. And that goes back, I mean, people are pretty familiar with Richter now, but Richter's like this little middle piece of the puzzle. So before Richter, and he kind of codifies and has his stuff adopted in like 1935, but prior to that, they uh, had a scale called the rossi foral scale. It was one of the first seismic scales to talk about um, the impact of these. And it just had a bunch of numbers. It just said, here's a 1, here's a 10. That's what we're going to rate them on, 1 to 10. 
10 is a great disaster. Ruins the strata. There's fissure in the ground. Rocks fall off mountains. A one is one thing kind of picks it up. Somebody noticed the shock was felt by an external observer because there's consistently non-earthquake movement inside the earth. Um, you get this scale, right? Where you kind of go, okay, how can we put this into terms we can understand? And what Rossi Forrell did is go, cool, 10 will be the worst and one will be the least noticeable, but least destructive as well. Richter came along and he put together this magnitude scale. And one of the reasons he put it together the way he did um, is because of the way that earthquakes work. So when you think of an earthquake, you probably think of what you see in movies and what you've seen in stuff that's been captured. Um, the little seismograph with its needle and the needle starts going fast back and forth. And that's how you know the earthquake's happening um, when you're standing in one. You know it's happening because it's moving. Uh, I grew up in San Diego, so I was used to earthquakes, I guess you'd say. We'd have we'd have them in school. I, I slept through a bunch of them when I was a kid. It was a going joke that I'd just sleep through earthquakes because I was asleep. Um, I slept very soundly as a child. But the energy that an earthquake is putting out is happening at some point inside the crust of the earth. And what's happening is these two plates that are pushed against each other are slowly moving. And sometimes they get stuck, and then all of a sudden, they'll move all at once. And that kind of governs how severe they can be. This is a very simplistic explanation. Please recognize that. So if you think about it, the point where those two plates slip and then adjust is the point of the earthquake. If you throw a big rock into the middle of a puddle... Or a pool. Let's do a, a pool, right? So if you throw a big rock into the shallow end of the pool, it's going to make waves. And those waves are going to be a little bit less the further they are from where you threw the rock in. It's the same thing with earthquakes, but in three dimensions and in dirt. And so wherever the earthquake itself happens, wherever the slip and catch happens, that's the epicenter of the earthquake. That's why you'll often hear that they were this far from the epicenter and the epicenter was this far underground. Because it's not often that it's a true surface quake. Well, that's not fair. There's all kinds of different earthquakes and there's a bunch happening on the surface all the time. But usually the big ones are happening lower. They're happening deeper where the plates are harder to move. They're not, you know, you think about dirt and rocks and concrete and all the different kind of things that are down there from where the water table is to whether it's limestone or whether it's granite or if it's just sand. All of that changes how that earthquake's going to hit. So that changes how the earthquake propagates as well. So when they talk about these Richter readings of the epicenter of the earthquake, they're trying to describe how much energy was released at that point, and they measure it as an amplitude. And by amplitude, I mean how far the needle swings on a seismograph. When they were developing it, they were developing it in Southern California and doing a lot of study around the faults down there, the San Andreas being the most famous. Because they were doing it in Southern California, it was based on Southern California earth and crust, which is a very specific kind of high granite, high sand, low hydration earth. And so Richter kind of put this together. And when they're looking at it and trying to figure out how bad earthquake could possibly be, that's something that's dependent on 
what they can observe where they're at. And where they were at was Southern California. And there's tons of other places where there are earthquakes. And to be fair, there's different ways that two plates can slip past each other. Besides just tapping into each other and sliding, you have these ones that can go underneath each other, ones that kind of push against each other and they both push up. Like there's all kinds of different ways that these can occur. But in Southern California, most of the stuff that's happening along the San Andreas Fault is this shear effect where one's moving one way and one's moving the other way and they, they kind of push against each other. There's a couple of spots in California you can go look at and you can see how far train tracks or a road or a line has been diverted by the slow movement of the San Andreas Falls because it just keeps moving. It just keeps shifting and the eastern side of it is going north and the western side of it is going south. And so they just consistently move past each other and occasionally build up and snap. But because of where he was researching, he had you know a certain amount of energy that he would see get released and that's what he's building his scale on so when he got in there and he goes okay i am going to dial up my my richter scale and it's a magnitude scale and here's how it's going to work he did overlay it on the the older system that was just a one to ten kind of view but he was pretty precise in it and something to know about the magnitude scale is that when you go from a four to a five it's not one greater it's 10 greater because it's a logarithmic scale. So what you're looking at is actually the exponent. So it's 10 to the, is how much power it's got. So a 10 to the seven, and then a 10 to the eight is 10 times as powerful. A 10 to the seven to a 10 to the nine is 100 times as powerful. So keep in mind that the reason that it's, it's so, severe and jumps up so much it's not a you know these little it's not one here and one there no it's it's 10 times worse or 100 times worse it's it's a very huge amount of energy that's being released and then you have their frequency so the little micro earthquakes that are onesies and twosies there's millions of them per year once you get into stuff that's in the middle fives and sixes you're somewhere between around a hundred sixes and maybe a thousand fives in a year you get up in the seven eights and nines and you're talking about very rare events so sevens to 7.9 there's 10 to 20 a year so we've just seen two that happened really quickly right behind each other um the eights to 8.9s you see one a year and nine o's and greater than nine o's is one per 10 to 50 years and those are massively catastrophic and a lot of them are legendary if you go back and look at the history of them there's even stories that native americans told of earthquakes happening in the 1700s when they didn't really have any way to report or record it they still had these giant earthquakes and they they talk about it. so to that i'm going to read a little bit from a hawkeye magazine article that talks about coastal ecosystems and this is about an earthquake in the 1700s so in the year 1700, on January 26th at 9 o'clock at night, in what is now Northern California, Earthquake was running up and down the coast. His feet were heavy, and when he ran, he shook the ground so much it sank down and the ocean poured in. The earth would quake and quake again and quake again, said the Yurok people, and the water was flowing all over. The people went to the top of a hill wearing headbands of woodpecker feathers so they could dance a jumping dance that would keep the earthquake away and return them to their normal lives. But they looked down and saw the water covering their village and the whole coast. They knew they could never make the world right again. That same night, farther up the coast in what is now Washington, Thunderbird and Whale had a terrible fight, making the mountains shake and uprooting the trees, said the Quileute and the Ho people. They said the ocean rose up and covered the whole land. 
Farther north still on Vancouver Island, dwarfs who lived in a mountain invited a person to dance around their drum. The person accidentally kicked the drum and got earthquake foot, said the new Cha Nuth people. And after that, every step he took caused an earthquake. The land shook and the ocean flooded in, said the Huai people, who are part of the new Cha Nuth. And people didn't even have time to wake up and get into their canoes, and everything drifted away. Everything was lost and gone. So those are the stories that the tribes were telling themselves about what had happened. And they reported that. That was oral tradition came down over the generations and they had those stories. Here's what geologists say. The earthquake that almost certainly occurred on the night of January 26, 1700, ruptured North America's Pacific Northwest coast for hundreds of kilometers from northeast northern California through Oregon and Washington to southern Vancouver Island. Along this coast, the Juan de Fuca plate was pushing under the larger North American plate got stuck, but kept pushing until it released, abruptly and violently. The earthquake that resulted was probably a magnitude 9. It's the big ones. The coast dropped by as much as 6.5 feet, and a tsunami brought floods more than 984 feet inland. So, that's what's reported. That's what they can see from looking at the evidence. Um, Looking back, they can see... Subsided marshes, drowned forests, sediment layers showing enormous landslides that flowed out on the ocean floor, seismic profiles on the Juan de Fuca plate, and satellite measurements of a coast deforming from the stress of a plate that's once again locked. So this is where this is going to get kind of interesting, because what we're going to talk about here is the likelihood of another earthquake like that happening in the northeastern United States. It's possible Specialists put the chance of another magnitude 9 earthquake there at 1 in 10 in the next 50 years. So 10% chance over 50 years, it's got to be factored into the actuarial tables. I would be really surprised if the insurance adjusters have not already calculated that in. But what does this mean for buying, owning, and having properties in the Northwest? Well, it's a calculated set of risks and it's true for all properties everywhere. So at a very flat way of saying this, there is risk in property wherever it is. And that risk is depreciated over time, right? So you kind of assume a house is going to last so many years, depending on what it's made out of. And during that time, you can have certain expenses related to it. Now, if you build somewhere that has a high incidence of fires or flooding from hurricanes or earthquakes. Just calculate that in. From a purely clinical point of view, it's a very straightforward risk assessment. But there's a secondary effect, and that's what we've seen happen after Hurricane Katrina, after Hurricane Harvey. You start to have these spots that look more dangerous because they've had these catastrophic events. Some of these catastrophic events are partly our fault. You'll see an increase in earthquakes in Oklahoma, and that's in large part due to fracking. When you inject a ton of water into the ground, it actually lubricates the plates and makes them more likely to slip past each other. Um, So you get earthquakes that you didn't have before. The power of that, though, and the decision on where to live can be changed drastically in a moment. I mean, we're seeing that right now on the Turkey-Syria border. They've known about earthquakes there, and they continue to live there. They continue to build there. A lot of their building codes, though, aren't retroactive. You you can't go in and tear down buildings and go, okay, this house, this four-story apartment building, this, we're going to retrofit it for earthquakes. 
it's harder to do there. Um, for us, it's actually easier to do in the U.S., although there's some fight against it occasionally. But generally, our building code continues to improve and adjust for these events, for these risks. These codes, however, are often in response to a disaster. So probably the most famous earthquake in the western U.S. is the 1906 earthquake that hit San Francisco. It caused 3,000 deaths, billions and billions of dollars in damage. The south, the San Francisco kind of, it just kept burning. Like, it was, it was bad. That event started research on earthquakes in the U.S., and it kind of set the ground for the introdu introduction of the building code in 1927. But that wasn't mandatory guides. That was suggestions. And then there was a 1933 Long Beach earthquake that was only a 6-4. Only a, it was a big earthquake. It was 6-4. Caused over 100 deaths, caused nearly a billion dollars in losses, and it showed the vulnerability of schools. So then the seismic design of schools and buildings became mandatory in California. So this is 1930s, right? So it's crazy. At the time, a lot of the federal agencies that are looking at this, they're like, well, why do we have to build earthquake-proof structures if we don't know if an earthquake's going to occur here? And in 1935, that building code gave them a map and said, here's the four seismic zones that have a likelihood of occurrence. So if you're in one of these zones, you have to build to these standards. The seismic forces were done as a percentage of the structural weight, so anywhere from 2 to 4% that the building had to be able to take in shaking. Um, and that that's how they were doing it then. I mean, this is 35, so we're just barely getting the Richter scale, right? So we're still at the the moment scale, or the, the 1 to 10 scale. We don't have quite sophisticated equipment. We're literally measuring it with a piece of paper and a little arm that goes back and forth. And what's happening is the ground is shaking and it's moving the piece of paper and that moment arm that's stuck out over the paper is is resisting that movement. It's got a little weight on it and you're you're literally just measuring the height of the squiggle. That's your measurement. So this goes on for a while and then in 1964 there's an Alaskan earthquake, huge huge earthquake. But there aren't that many people in Alaska in 1964. It was a magnitude 9.2, huge earthquake, 131 deaths, several billion dollars in losses. But the U.S. Geological Survey looks at that and goes, oh, oh my. And by 1969, they've revised the seismic hazard map. Most of that is around the central and eastern zones, and they increase the expected seismic intensity. All this research that had been done in Southern California didn't necessarily play well with Alaskan soil and the effects and they realized oh that's probably true in the northeast as well uh 1971 was the san fernando earthquake it was a 6.6 .6, 66 deaths three and a half billion dollars in losses critical facilities fell down hospitals fell down so they did a new seismic map in 1976 in 1977 FEMA, the U.S. Geological Survey, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, and the National Science Foundation joined forces and made a program to promote research and engineering seismology. They incorporated the latest knowledge in earthquake design and construction into the codes and reduced the nation's seismic vulnerability. So it's like, yeah, it's this big thing. We got it. And then we have two earthquakes in California within five years, six years, the 1989 Loma Prieta quake and the 1994 Northridge earthquake. The earthquakes were devastating. They, they collapsed freeways. They 
made buildings fall down. It was awful. So the three seismic building codes were still in wide use in the 90s. The Uniform Building Code in the Western State, Building Officials and Code, National Building Code in Northeast and Central, and the Standard Building Code in Southeastern. The International Code Council put these all together in a set of national building codes in 1994 to reduce the cost and complexity of building construction. Today, those recommended standards are adopted into a national standard. In 2016, this was updated to include the first national standard for resilience against tsunamis. So this thing continues to evolve and get better in response to events that we see. But, 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 the one thing that it doesn't really correct for is stuff that's just been sitting there. The first house I ever owned was in San Diego and it was built in 1951. That was not a house that was built with really any of these codes in mind. A lot of the houses in California weren't. They were built to be profitable. They were built to sell. They were built to turn. My grandparents' house that he bought in uh, 1953. No, that's when my dad was born. In 1960s. My grandpa bought his house in the 1960s. And when we were working on it, we realized that some of the studs in non-load-bearing walls were made of drywall. Stacked pieces of drywall to make a stud in the wall. So, there's not always these building to code. And what they've figured out as they go through the years and look at this stuff is that there are different ways to take care of this. And part of the reason that there's value in certain real estate, especially residential real estate, is the offices and amenities and museums and things that provide the core of the city and these are these giant buildings those buildings continue to get better at being earthquake proof they have flexible foundations that can kind of shake a little bit and move back and forth they have vibrational control devices that are dampers attached to beams and they got pistons in them uh, really large buildings extremely large buildings could have pendulums inside and the pendulum moves opposite the earthquakes movement to kind of pull it back into alignment. They can reinforce the building structure and do more things with specially engineered steels and concretes and cross bracing sheathing. They have shear walls, um, moment resisting frames, and they're better and better at this all the time. Um, you know, there's earthquake-resistant materials, right? So wood tends to be really good weight to strength. It's very good at taking absorptions. Structural steel is pretty good because it you can make it in the I-beam frame. So an I-beam is really good at resisting certain types of deflection stress. And then you have random stuff like bamboo, where just bamboo's really good at flexibility and taking that stress. Um, they're making all kinds of new materials now to do that. But as they do all this, like all these things kind of play together. And I, I think what I'm trying to get for you guys is just this idea of understanding that this is there, not to be surprised when it happens, to be sad at the loss of life and sad at the loss of property. But we don't stop living in places because there's a risk. There's a risk at living in any place. Um, there's a risk we could run out of water in Southern California. There's a risk we could have an earthquake in Southern California. It's possible we could have hurricane level events all up and down Florida. But in the same way we talk about how do we live in space? How do we live on Mars? We okay. How do we live with this and minimize the amount of 
human life loss and minimize the amount of land loss and property loss. Like that's, that's the turnabout for this. So when we talk about the likelihood of giant catastrophic events that could happen, things like there are in Turkey, we also have to recognize what we've done and how far we've come in being able to rent those things. Um, there's a lot to look into. There's a lot of different ways to look at how these pieces go together to make for a more sustained and resilient building profile, especially in places where we know this stuff is coming. I think that there's a validity and a beauty to Seattle and the Pacific Northwest. It is gorgeous. It is gorgeous country. Um, but it also has this slight danger there that's possible. It's not hugely probable, but it's possible. I think that it's more risky to continue to build houses that can't resist hurricanes in the path of hurricanes. We should not have um, mobile home parks and houses that can't withstand hurricanes in the path of hurricanes and then rebuild them with insurance. Uh, Florida's running through this problem right now with its, ins its insurance setup where the other people don't want to insure it because it's so likely to happen. So that all kind of stacks together. And I guess where I'm kind of flowing with this and I'm kind of going with this, that these are balanced things that you can understand and accept. But I want you as an owner, as an investor, even as a resident, somebody that's going to live in these areas, to be aware of these things. Log it, put it in the back of your head, and think about it when you're doing upgrades to the property. Think about it when you're renting. Think about it when you're looking at the diversity of your rental portfolio. Is your risk adequately distributed? And think about it when something like Turkey happens and go, Jesus, what if that was here? And when you think about that and when you think about what if that was here, that's when you really should go and donate to whitehelmets.org and sams-usa.net for supporting these people and helping them through um, one of the other backstops that we have here besides just pure Red Cross and people's goodwill and donations is we have FEMA and we have these, these giant programs that can help people when catastrophic damages like this happen, when droughts happen, when floods happen, and yes, when earthquakes happen because one of them is going to happen again. It is going to happen in the United States. There will be a level nine earthquake in the U.S. at some point in the future. I don't know when. <laughs> I could not say where it's going to hit or how bad it's going to be. But we're going to get one. We're going to get a seven. We're going to get a six. We're going to get the same earthquake that Syria and Turkey just had somewhere in the U.S. And it'll have a different effect. And we'll have different kinds of deaths and different complications. But this is an international thing. This happens everywhere. So... When you're looking at your properties, when you're looking at your stuff, keep that in mind. The end and kind of the takeaway for this whole episode is just to get more awareness to the ways that you can help Turkey and Syria while also getting it in your head that this is not a thing that happens just in Turkey and Syria. This is something that's that's definitely, definitely hit the United States multiple times and will hit again. So be aware of it, be prepared for it, and be ready to help your neighbor and our neighbors around the world. So we'll have links in the description for both of those charities. 
Uh, be sure to check your local building codes. If you have an older building, it wouldn't hurt to see if you can do anything to upgrade it to be resistant to earthquakes. With that, if you need any property management services for those properties up in the Northwest, uh, you can let us know at poplar.home slash pod. That's poplar.home slash P-O-D. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.